It's Deadly Voices from the House. Thanks for joining us on Deadly Voices from the House. I'm Rhoda Roberts. And you know what? We're going to switch the tables today. Instead of me doing the interview, I actually have invited my amazing colleague, head of Talks and Ideas Program, Anne Mossop, who's actually going to interview me. So welcome to Deadly Voices from the House, Anne. Thank you, Rhoda. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, And I'm really happy to be talking to Rhoda today. We're going to be talking to Rhoda about her work, some of the huge uh, projects that she's worked on over the years. But we're also going to talk to her a bit about her life, where she grew up, the influences on her, some of the really tough things that she's had to deal with, how she stayed connected to the country where she grew up, and what she's up to right now. So I want to start by talking to you a little bit about where you grew up and about your family. You grew up in and around Lismore. You're a member of the Bundjalung Nation, the Widgibal clan. Your father and your grandfather, Frank Roberts Senior and Junior, were both activists, both churchmen, both leaders. Tell us how they influenced you and tell us a bit about your family growing up. Okay. Well, I grew up in Lismore um, and it was an interesting childhood because we were, my father in fact was the first in his family to marry outside the Aboriginal community. So he married a young white woman, my mum, Anglo-Saxon from Sydney. And so she was determined that no matter it was a mixed marriage and of course in those days living under the Act or the Aborigines Protection Act, they actually had to get permission from the mission manager to marry. And Dad had talked about this incredible place he'd come from, Cabbage Tree Island. It's an island, unlike many in Australia, it's where two rivers meet, or Guaigum, what we call it. And um, it was paradise. And the community there, under the guidance of my great-grandfather, Lyle Roberts Sr., Um, We run out of names in our family. Everyone's junior and senior. Um, He created a co-op, a sugarcane co-op. And so they were very self-sufficient on this island. There was no, you had to row to the mainland. Um, And they were incredibly uh, knowledgeable of culture. They continued. And I've got a recording of my grandfather was very aware that language was against the law, of course, in those days and practising any sort of cultural elements. And so he ensured that all our corroboree songs were recorded and placed in the archives for future generations. And it's quite interesting because in one of the conversations, he actually says, well, you know, my father was a tribal man. I grew up the tribal way. I'm not ashamed of it. And it just makes me smile to think that that he had to justify that in those days. So I grew up really in two worlds. My mother, you know, had heard about paradise on Cabbage Tree Island. She rocked up to see it. And of course, my grandparents were living in a shanty and, um, they had actually moved off the island um, in protest in 1934. It was a major walk-off. And they'd settled at another place just outside Lismore in the bush called Kabawi. 
and they made, they built a shop, a school, a church and houses, but they were all shanty. And my mother was horrified. And so luckily her parents had money and so she bought a house, a property um, up in the bush in Lismore. And so my father wanted us to know the island as a mission and what it was like, but also to spend time at Kabawee. So every weekend we would go to the grandparents. So it was these two worlds we lived in. And what kind of family had your mother come from in Sydney? So my mum came from a fairly middle-class family. Uh, Again, her parents were horrified that she was going to marry a black man. And when you talk of the 40s and the 50s, this was not something people did, you know. How did they meet? They met. My mother was a Sunday school teacher and my father was... um, working in the church, and so he came as the minister. He came late. He had to walk because he had no money, God bless him. And so she couldn't get over the fact that he didn't apologise, that he was late. And so she didn't like him very much when she first met him. He immediately saw her and went, right, this is the woman I'm going to marry. And so it followed the classic romantic lines where, you know, he converted her to being interested in him. Yes, Well, he's such a gentle soul and such a great sense of humour, and so I think he won her over. But it was at a time when my dad's parents had basically used the church as a front to continue language, and also they were very involved in the Aboriginal Progressive Association of the 20s. They were communists, and so it was an opportunity. The church was a facade to have these meetings and discuss, you know, doing the walk-off and various other things. And so Dad had come to Sydney um, to train as a minister. He then, uh, when they got married, Dad then left my mother immediately and went to America and trained at the Oral Roberts Theological College in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, of course, his roommate was Martin Luther King. So he was very inspired by that Southern Baptist evangelical um, movement. But when Dad met Mum, of course, he'd come straight out of Kabawi, a shantytown, And he'd never seen an electric light switch. When he goes to my um, grandparents' mum's family to have dinner, of course they set the table for dinner with the various wine glasses and knives and forks. And he had absolutely no idea, so he just watched my mother and everything she did, he did. But my nana caught on to this, and she felt that he was a very nice gentleman, but really, you know... He wasn't educated. <laughs> that's an incredible story. I mean, I, the, 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 the Martin Luther King roommate, that's an mm. extraordinary coincidence. But you can see the sense in which in the kind of community that your grandparents and your father came from, that the church was part of a social structure and it was a way to go on building community and thinking about politics that was sanctioned by, um, by the system under which Aboriginal people lived at that point. And that in the same way as it did with someone like Martin Luther King, there's the scope for that to become, become part of the vehicle for political discussions and protest. But the, the direct connection with Martin, Martin Luther mm. King is incredibly, incredibly interesting. And so you were born into that family. You grew up um, there. You still... Uh, very much connected to that part of the world, even though a lot of your work takes you to here in Sydney, but to a whole lot of places around the world. What is so important about that for you? You know, it's really hard to talk to what's the word to say how you're connected to country. I mean, everyone loves their family and most people are always connected to families. 
I think we had a very extraordinary family in that we had my mum's side where we were very, very close to all our cousins and so forth. But also we had our dad's side. And I think growing up in a regional town in the 50s and 60s uh, really opened your eyes about racism. I'm very fair skinned compared to my cousins. And my mum ended up and dad raised a lot of his nieces and nephews. When they reached a certain age, they would come and live with us. And so they were like brothers and, and sisters to us. Many of them have passed now, and I guess that's one thing too, is wanting my children to know their family, how big it is, but also that connection to being on country. My great-grandfather was the last fully initiated Bunjalung man. And that's quite extraordinary because it's not that long ago. And he set up a three-point plan for Bunjalung to follow. And I think every day I consider that plan and it was remember your race and identity. Never be ashamed of your colour and enable your culture. Continue it. And the last point was work with those who have arrived and give them as much of our knowledge as you can. And he was quite a man before his time, I think. Um, he learnt to speak English. You know, my father, they're all multilingual. Um, and Dad, you know, put the dictionary together and back years ago. And that's how we learned about country. He would walk and tell us what the name of that river was, what that mountain was, what that tree was. And by telling us those stories of that environment and that landscape, it's more than the mountain or the rock or the of tree. Of course. It's and I think that plays a very special part in why you're connected. Yes, definitely. I moved home on a more, I mean, I always wanted to live in the bush, but I moved home, I guess, because my mother had gone through so much severe pain in a decade. She'd lost her husband, her daughter, and many of the young people she raised that she regarded as her um, family as well. And so I wanted to be closer. Mm to her. That leads us to talk about some of the, the difficult things that are part of, were also part of that family life. You grew up with a twin sister, Lois, but two tragedies took place in her life. When she was 21, she was in a severe, a terrible car accident and came out of it with permanent brain damage. And then in 1998, she disappeared and was found, it was found that her body wasn't found for six months and it turned out that she had been murdered. What was the effect of this terrible story on your life and on your family? I remember I was working as a nurse and I was ironing my uniform, I was on a three o'clock shift. And of course it was the days before mobiles and I was in a flat and, and um, I don't think I had a phone line connected. Anyway, there was a knock on the door and there was police standing there. Nothing unusual about that. Um, and I thought, oh, something's happened. But I didn't realise it was going to be my sister. And so they told me she had this major car accident. It was extraordinary, I had no money. The matron paid for my airfare. The charge sister took me to the airport. So I saw almost immediately another side of people that I was terrified of who became so uh, generous and um, the empathy they showed. I was still thinking it wasn't anything major. Mm. 
by the time I got home, we had to go straight to Brisbane. They'd given her hours to live. And all the time I kept thinking, we're twins. We used to always feel each other's pain. We used to do all these things at school. We were really close. And I couldn't understand why I didn't get a feeling or that something. So I kept thinking everything was going to be okay. Um, I had 20 years of one sister. Yes. And then I had 20 years of another sister, almost, because she was very gregarious, quite shallow, in fact. She was a party <laughs> animal. Um, and we were about to head overseas. Yes. I was in my final year of nursing and we were, we were going to get a job on a cruise ship. I was going to be the nurse and she was a hairdresser. Had it all planned. And um, she didn't save a cent, but she was like, you, you'll pay for me, it'll be right, you know. And then when we were driving to Brisbane, my father was beside himself. And I had to say to him, but you've got another daughter. And it was really the bonding of my dad and I on that drive to... I'd never seen him so distraught and crying and he... I was worried about him driving. And just before we hit Brisbane, the truck in front of us threw up a rock and it broke the windscreen, right outside a windscreen repair. And it was like it was meant to happen and we sat there and I hugged him and then he, you know, we just, it was amazing. And so he gave me the tools, I guess, to cope with that. He said, because he was saying, look, we'll pray, um, everything will be okay. And I said, no, Dad, it's a man-made machine that's keeping her alive. Let's turn it off. She can't, she wouldn't want to be a vegetable, you know. And he came in and went out and came back with all these feathers. And then he sat by her bed and in language he did this song and then he stayed and prayed all night and in the morning she had brain activity so they stopped they said we can't turn the machine off now and so that and then he said i kept saying oh what sort of god would do this to an innocent you know the usual stuff he gave me the tools of saying there's reasons for everything this will change your life but give you strength and he was right And so she emerged from that coma, but as you said, she was a different person. Um, she, you had this different sister for 20 years and then another tragedy struck in the most awful way that, that anyone can think of. Um, some years after that experience, you made a film about it with Ivan Sen. Um, tell us a little bit about how, what that meant in terms of what that enabled you to do with that experience, how that turned that experience into something to share with other people. You know, it's interesting, the film, because Ivan kept asking me for many years and I said, oh, no, no, I don't want to talk about it. I'd never actually talked to anyone about what happened to my sister because I knew if I broke down, I had to be there for the family. They weren't coping and so I had to... And, of course, the police officer that was looking at the investigation... He also said, I need to tell you things because there needs to be one person in this family that can cope with this. And, and so, so that I was carried you. it. Yeah. And so when I finally did say yes to the film, basically thinking, well, if we get the information out, it might... Might help find, solve yeah. the case, yeah. And so all of a sudden, all this anger, I guess, that had been inside me, which I didn't realise, um, just bubbled out. And I really was angry with the police. And it wasn't just about my sister. 
It was the number of women who have disappeared from the North Coast, never investigated. They basically said to me, your sister's gone walkabout. You know, she used to do She's some... She's an adult. Yeah, and she used to do some inappropriate things because of the brain damage. And I just knew, I just knew... And so you felt that if they'd acted swiftly, Mm. things might have been different? I feel that very much so. My other cousin went missing six months after my sister in very similar circumstances. And again, they said, look, she's um, had some mental illness and that she's just gone walkabout. And her death has not been investigated as well. So, hmm. So, and and the murder of your sister remains an unsolved case to this day? It remains unsolved. Um, there's been lots of investigation now by various independents looking at the number of women who've gone from the North Coast and is is there a serial killer? I really believe there is because of things that happened And because her. of the pattern mm. of those activities. Let's talk about, let's turn a little bit from from that side of your childhood. Throughout your career, you have worked across a whole lot of different art firms. You've, after your, your time working as a nurse, you've worked as an actor, you became a groundbreaking television presenter on SBS, um, you've produced festivals, you know, an extraordinary range of activity in the arts. Where did that passion to work in the arts come from? I think from my parents. My mum was a great singer. Was she? And she introduced us, of course, to the classics and reading was her big thing. Always read a book, every type of book. Um, So I always got books for presents. Um, Dad gave me Stokey Carmichael's Black Panther book when I was 15. That was my 15th birthday present. Um, I always He'd moved on from the Martin Luther King period. Yes, he'd moved on. Um, No, he was a very gentle soul and he was very much about equality and... um, civil rights. I always wanted to write and I had a wonderful teacher, uh, Mr Muldoon, John Muldoon, who told me I could. I could write and that's all I wanted to do. Of course, by the 70s, early 70s when I finished high school, I was told that I was getting too big for my boots and who would consider wanting a journalist, um, Aboriginal journalist and so forth. And so I went nursing because I had to have a real job. So that was always in the back of my mind. And then, of course, once I graduated and um, became a registered nurse, I went to London, did another certificate. So there I had that skill behind me. And so then I could concentrate on writing, acting and so forth. And when I came back to Australia, um, it was actually Bruce Beresford. I was at a dinner party in England and they were looking of casting the Fringe Dwellers. And they were saying, oh, there's no Aboriginal actors. So I got on my soapbox and said, well, what about Justine Saunders? And um, so when I came back, I auditioned for that role um, in Fringe Dwellers, but I didn't get it because they thought I was too fair-skinned. <laughs> but they thought I could act, which was good. And so they got me an agent and away I went. I did a lot of theatre. I love theatre. and. One theatre show I was doing, we toured the country. It was um, Robin Archer I was working with. She directed it. And my father came to every city we were in. I didn't know. He'd sit at the back and there was one moment in the play where it was I made a joke, which I told really well, and he'd laugh. And I'd hear his laugh and I'd know Dad was in the audience. And it was him who said, now I get what you're doing. The church was my platform, but you have the theatre as your platform. So use that well. 
even if you change one mind, you know, you'll have achieved something. So I guess that's where... So that would be a great impetus to continue, I think. I want to talk about two of your two projects in the arts um, in particular because... And then, then I want to talk about some of the things that you've been doing more recently because... You know, there's there's a lot lot to talk about, but there are two things that I think have had a really interesting long term impact that you've you know initiated. So we're here talking on Deadly Voices from the House, um, and this is the successor of Deadly Sounds, which was part of the Vibe Stable of activities, and in fact, what started those off. When I look at the history of that, that started you started presenting that in 1993. It ran for 21 years more than a thousand programs, um, an extraordinary um, list of Aboriginal artists, sports people, political figures, everybody on that program telling their stories. Tell me what you were trying to do with that when you started it and why you think it was important to do. Yeah, we wanted a national radio program and we realised that we had these great dreams for Vibe. There was going to be Deadly Sounds, there was the magazine and the following year after we started the music program, we started the Deadly Awards. And so we wanted to create uh, a weekly program where artists got national airplay. That was the big point, but also to show people the stories and break down some of those assumptions and at the time those stereotypes of, you know, well, real Aborigines only live in the desert or, you know, artwork is only about dot painting or all Aboriginals think the same. So when we'd have the political leaders on, we would get so much feedback going, look, you people can't agree. Absolutely not. We're like anyone else. We have varying opinions and we have some conservatives and we have some... Um, spoken people who are outraged by the situation we live in Australia. So that was a great platform to get those sorts of things across to a broader audience. We went around the country to over 500 networks, but we also went on air across the Asia-Pacific region and also a number of ABC regionals. So that was really good because we were gathering momentum. With And at the time, there was no program that sort of had the mainstay of music, but also all these discussions. I mean, it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary thing when, and, and, and also I assume that that was the platform to us seeing you as a groundbreaking presenter on SBS television and, and all of those things. It seems to me that that's a huge, you know, if you go back to 1993, it's hugely important to be, you know, and to, you know, what you're trying to do here is it do that in an ongoing way, provide a forum for those discussions, but also as a celebration of those stories. A few weeks ago, you were awarded the Order of Australia in recognition of your work in the arts and promoting contemporary Indigenous culture. Um, what does this mean to you, that kind of recognition? You know, I really struggled whether I would accept that award because I knew that with it comes the question of why, as a sovereign person of this country, would you accept from another sovereign person this award? And I heard the voice of my father and I looked at our three-point plan and I actually thought of my sister. It's really hard to find the words to say what this award means, but I would not be doing the work I do if... The incidences that happened in my life at a very tender age 
right on my 21st birthday without my sister, I dug myself into work. I created and generated stuff because it kept me sane. And I thought, when you lose a life like that, you go, what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional. No, that's fine. I mean, I think it was very interesting for me reading the citation for your Order of Australia and listening to you talk about your great-grandfather's plan because it's almost like those things are incredibly overlapping about culture and identity, about working with those who arrived, because one of the things that you have always done is not just those things about, about, you know, like about being proud of your... Aboriginal culture, but also very much about developing it, sharing it, and, you know, the words in the citation, promoting contemporary Indigenous culture, but also about, with that incredible generosity, working with people who want to work with you, you know, extending that out to a broader community, not saying, this is a culture for us, this is our culture, but really wanting to share that. So if it comes, you know, in part, if that strength to go on doing that and that impetus comes from those terrible events in your early life, I think a lot of people at hard times like that will jump into work or some mm. other, other thing, but to jump into a, a, a long career of this kind of contribution uh, is very impressive. So certainly well, it's your colleagues having were... having that award, exactly. really it's the amazing artists we have. It's the teams that help me get there. But it's also my family. You know, I've raised my sister's child. I have my two children. I have a wonderful man who allow me to go and do these things. So with it comes sacrifices as well. But I think having that AO is really important. It says that First Peoples in Australia are also recognised for what they do. And it's really important. Rosalie Kunath Monks, mm. who spoke here in um, um, in Home Ground Talks a few uh, weeks ago, uh, talked about that sense of Aboriginal people being sovereign people, and that you know the government of Australia and the 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 Queen as ultimate head of that government also sovereign people. So I love your idea, the idea of you know one sovereign person being recognised by another. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's very appropriate. Good old Lizzie. <laughs> So the last thing I want to talk to you about is a project that just wound up a couple of days ago, which uh, was something incredibly beautiful that uh, was shared with the people of Sydney, the people of the world, um, lighting the sales song lines as part of Vivid at the Sydney Opera House. The last night of that was on Sunday. For those of you who didn't see it, it was the most beautiful lighting installation that covered the sales of the Sydney Opera House uh, with the work of a range of different Aboriginal artists to the accompaniment of a, a beautiful soundtrack. Track. You were the director of this project. Um, it was obviously a complex project. You worked with a range of different artists from all around Australia and had to look at, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure most people listening to it will, will, if they haven't already seen it, you know, look it up uh, online now. Y using that artwork, to tra it being translated into three dimensions and I in a really striking and important way. Tell us a little bit about how you worked with those artists, how you conceived the project and what you were trying to do. I think the importance of having that opportunity of work, you know, having Aboriginal art on the sales of the Sydney Opera House is enormous. I also wanted to 
to tell a story. I think anything creative, if it has a thematic, it works. So song lines are so important to us. It's what maps our country. It's our archive. So to tell it through a visual uh, interpretation. So the artists I looked at, and, you know, I could have... There's so many great artists. But I wanted to look at artists who represented the East Coast, where their markings and the work comes from old ways, but have using new technologies. I wanted to ensure that there was wonderful new... The Papanyatula movement and the Western Desert Dot movement are very familiar around the world. I wanted to bring the new breath of life. And who's doing that is Gabriella Possum at the moment. So she was selected. We had to honour one of our greatest artists, the late Mrs. Gulumbu Yunipingu. Her star work that she painted for the Musée de Quai Bronley in Paris, which I was very fortunate to be working on, and spent time in Paris with her. And her doing those stars based on a very ancient story, but she made them contemporary because she said, this is for the world. We all gaze on the night sky. So it is one thing that connects us. And of course, Mr. Donnie Wolaguja in the West with the Wanjana, it's the only place in the world where this type of art exists. And extraordinary imagery. But also, he allowed us during the Sydney Olympics with the opening ceremony that I directed, he allowed us to send that Wanjana out to the world. So Namralili needed another breath. And so we told the story from the east to the west. When the winds come and it's the voices of the grandmothers, virtually every nation within this great nation, Aboriginal nations have stories of their women and they all come from the east. And the winds come in September, bringing back those grandmother voices to the east and the gathering. So it's like this full cycle. It's about our land song lines, but also our sky people song lines. So it was a big look. But, you know, the reason it worked, and I'm so thrilled with the response, but it worked so well because it was an incredible creative team. Uh, Artists in motion, extraordinary animators and graphic designers. And it was amazing because they got it. Mm. I sat down with them and told them the depth and the layering of these artworks and they got it. They're incredible. But it was the artists. Um, Rico Rennie, uh, Carla Dickens, John Mundine from the East and the others I mentioned, they gave me their work. I told them I would be breaking it up. It wouldn't just appear as one piece. And they trusted me enough and were ensured that I would hopefully do the right appropriate mix of animation. and But they trusted me. And I think that's the key. And have they been pleased with the result? Oh, my gosh. They have laughed. They have cried. They've cried. They've cried. They've thanked me, thanked me, thanked me. It's been incredible for the artists. I'm so proud. They've all... And, you know, Mrs Gulumbu Yunipingu's family just moved to tears when they saw what we did with her work and made that statement. Yeah, just incredible. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work and it's been fascinating to see how broadly that's been shared and how many people have responded to it. Thank you, Rhoda. Thank you, Anne. That was the first episode of Deadly Voices from the House. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.